Oxycontin was introduced to me one night in high school. I think I was a junior, so I was I was 15 or 16. And I mean, it's really that simple. Like the night I did that, I did hard drugs or was immediately addicted to whatever I was doing until the day I finally got sober. That's Cooper Eisenman on this episode of Time to Sing Your Song. This may be one of the most important and raw conversations that I have with a guest. As a parent and someone who's been exposed to addiction really my entire life, Cooper's story is unbelievably sad and heartwarming all at the same time. Sad because of the grip that drugs had on him at such a young age. Just think about trying a drug once and being immediately hooked where every single day is spent in desperate pursuit of your next high, irrespective of the consequences. Heartwarming, on the other hand, because Cooper has found a vibe in his life that is free of his addiction. He has an incredible marriage to the daughter of the man who's influential in getting him clean. Two beautiful children and a career that he loves so much that it just doesn't feel like work. My name is Mike Kearney, your host. And after spending nearly three decades at Deloitte, I am devoting my life to helping people sing their song as a coach and as a podcast host. A lot of people ask me, why would I have given up such a great career to go on this journey? And it's because I want to help people. And I've learned that the best teachers are those who are down and out or even knocked on their ass and somehow were able to create a better life for themselves. These stories of rock bottom and redemption are the inspiration for the podcast. If you are someone struggling with addiction, I am hopeful that Cooper's story can give you a glimmer of hope that getting clean and living a great life is possible, though not easy. If you are a parent, this is a must-listen interview. It may not be part of the mainstream discussion, but drug use is ravaging our communities, and it often starts when kids are in school. Just think about this crazy stat. Fentanyl is now the number one cause of death for Americans ages 18 to 45, surpassing suicide, COVID-19, and car accident-related deaths. And don't think this would never happen to your kid because it is blind to race, religion, and economic status. When it gets a hold of someone, the journey to sobriety is not guaranteed, not by a long shot. So let's hear Cooper's story from addiction hell to riding the vibes of sobriety. Cooper Eisenman, great to have you here on Time to Sing Your Song. Thanks, Mike. Glad to be here. Hey, Cooper, you got an incredible story that I'm, I'm really excited to hear about overcoming addiction and then becoming a wild success. That's where we're going to spend most of, of our conversation today. But what I really want to start with is just getting to know you a bit, getting to know you a bit as to where you are today. So, so maybe if you could just start and give a bit of background on yourself. Who are you? What drives you? Sure. Yeah. Well, my name's Cooper. I was born in Los Angeles. Parents divorced when I was two. Mom remarried to a guy in um, the Bay Area, Northern California. So I moved to Pleasanton, California when I was five. Um, went through the public school system there. Um, raised by a great family and no complaints there. And then 
got into some trouble and some drug use in my early teens. Um, as a result of that, went to a program for a couple years. Um, and I never went to college, never really had any dreams or aspirations, to be honest with you. Um, I was just kind of living my life day to day. And then as a result of that program, I had a perception change on life that really changed uh, the way I look at life, what I value, um, what I take seriously, how I want to hold myself. And then I got into real estate um, as a result of my aunt. She kind of uh, made it seem attractive to me to begin with because she's a successful real estate agent in Los Angeles. And I got my real estate license and, um, you know, took off from there. I, I now have, I'm married. I have two kids, a four-year-old and a one-year-old. And now we're just taking it day by day, trying to get better each and every day and uh, trying to fulfill our dreams and aspirations and everything that encompasses. So you, you said a couple of things that I'd love to just drill down on quickly. You said, um, first of all, that your values have changed a bit. When you think about like your core values, and, and obviously we're going to get into the story that's driving that, but what are a couple things that come to mind uh, when you think about what you truly value? Sure. Um, that has changed over the years. I think as I sit here presently, I value my time um, with my family and the time I need to continue in my success, whatever that may look like. Um, I value money. A lot of people will probably balk at that a little bit, but I do value money and I, I have a good relationship with money and I, I would like to have more of it one day. Um, I value family and friends a lot and I value, um, I say the word vibe a lot. So like when you catch a vibe, whatever you're comfortable with, whatever feels comfortable in your soul, that's the way I look at the word vibe. And, um, I like to spend time doing the things I really love, you know, back in the day, I used to feel like I need to do something to look a certain way to somebody else. And as I get older and I'm not very old, but I I've learned a lot since I've been alive and through, through what I have been through. And so now I'm so focused on just doing the things that I want to do that make me comfortable, not, not in the sense of like doing uncomfortable things to grow, but like, do I want to go to this place if I don't feel like doing that? Do I want to spend time here with these people if I don't like those people, those kinds of things. So I really value doing what I love to do and what will get me to the next level, if you will. I'm uh, almost 51, uh, Cooper, and it's pretty much taken my entire life to figure that out. So kudos to you. It sounds like you're a bit younger, but uh, <laughs> that just that whole idea of, of like doing the things that fulfill you. And, and quite frankly, maybe sometimes it's more about not doing the shit that you don't want to do or spending time yeah. with people that are toxic or whatever it may be. So uh, I'm happy for you, man. That's awesome. Who inspires you? Is there anybody that you can think of in your life? And it, it could literally be anybody, but is there somebody that inspires you? <clears throat> and just just as a precursor to the rest of this interview if i do take a pause to think about a question we have not broken connection i actually like to answer things as thoroughly and correctly 
to myself as possible. So if I'm thinking, that's where the uh, the silence is for a little bit. Um, that's all good. <clears throat> not okay. So there's groups of people that I aspire to be like who influence me, but and we we'll get into this probably as you ask more about my story. But the most influential person to date probably has to be my father-in-law who since passed in 2018, but he actually ran the program that I ended up going to that helped change my life. And I was with him for almost two years every day. And I, I really valued that time. And he really took the time to instill these principles in me. Um, so out of anybody in the world that I can really pinpoint, I'd have to say it's my father-in-law. That's, that's, I don't even know what to say because that's pretty incredible. Cause I, I think of experiences that I've had and I know that there's always times where, you know, the people that really matter show up. It sounds like your father-in-law was like that. I mean, two years is a long time and, and I don't know if it's serendipitous and we will get into this, but the fact that he was running the program that probably saved your life is pretty cool in and of itself. So let's, let's maybe get to that story. You know, the time where you're stuck, you've already indicated that you had some, some challenges with addiction. Maybe take us back to the beginning, kind of where you got involved with whatever drug and you can start it off wherever you want and then kind of how it evolved over time. And then we'll just take this organically um, based on your answers. Sure. So at the beginning, I had a pretty typical experience, high school experience. So that this is where all that started. And honestly, at the beginning, it doesn't seem to differ too much from the average varsity football player or, you know, women's volleyball player, you know, just the normal high school party scene. We all go to high school parties, maybe not everybody, but the people I hung out with did. And I knew a lot of people who did. And so that's where it started. And to be honest with you, over time, I was like so curious as to what this may, would make me feel like or um, or how to do this thing. And so uh, Oxycontin was introduced to me one night in high school. I think I was a junior, so I was I was 15 or 16. And I mean, it's really that simple. Like the night I did that, I did hard drugs or was immediately addicted to whatever I was doing until the day I finally got sober. So I didn't have this crazy run of like 15, 20 years of addiction. And a lot of people do. And I really feel for those people because I can only imagine doing what I did, but it's snowballing into like homelessness. And before you know it, you're 15, 20 years deep into drug addiction. Um, but that's how it started. So it was one night in high school and then it parlayed itself into um, heroin eventually. And then uh, that was a daily thing for me, completely dependent on that drug until the day I got sober. And then intermixed, you know, throughout those years, you know, was other type of hard drugs that I would do occasionally with friends or at parties. But um uh, Oxycontin and then eventually heroin became the thing that ran my life for the years that it did until I got sober. Can we go back to that, 
that first night where you said you took the Oxycontin, it, it sounds like what you, what you said is that you took it and then every day thereafter till you stopped. And so it sounds like you got hooked pretty quick, which is scary. I think, especially for many parents out there that are listening, it's like you could do it once and then you're kind of a slave to the drug. Was that, was that your experience? Uh, that was my experience. Yes. And to be honest with you, that's not everybody's experience. Frankly, I have used Oxycontin and heroin with people who did not become fully dependent on it right away. But all the people that I hung out with, all of my friends, most definitely became dependent on it and it ran their life and it threw them into a hole that they had to climb out of eventually. Um, some of which are not there and are now those homeless people in San Francisco that I spoke about earlier, unfortunately. And frankly, no one wants to hear this, but death. Um, that is a very real case for a lot of people and a lot of people that I've known overdosing um, on these hard drugs. So um, to answer your question, yes, from the day I did it, there is only one instance that I can remember that I did not use it. And I was still only using Oxycontin at that time. But I went on a family trip and I didn't have it for five days. And, and this is always the story I go back to when, you know, a conversation gets sparked regarding the difference between heroin and Oxycontin. So the difference for me was that Oxycontin was easy to leave town without. It was not something that you would freak out over or not be able to leave the town or need to bring with you. This, the day I started using heroin was the day my life went into a really deep hole that I could not get out of. And um, from that day on, I could not leave my hometown without it or I could not um, figure out a plan B on how I could bring it with me in order to be okay wherever I did go. So yeah, from, from the first day, it was an everyday thing. And so for somebody that may not be up to speed on addiction, you mentioned that there are some of your friends that would do it and they'd be fine. Like they could do it once or twice and they'd never go back to it or maybe several times, but didn't get addicted like you did. What do you think drove your addiction? Was there something missing in your life or when you did the hard work, what ultimately came up for you? <clears throat> I don't know, man. Like when, so I got sober in a 12 step program, um, Alcoholics Anonymous. And um, through that program, you do a lot of work on yourself and your past and the amends you need to make and where you were wrong in certain situations in your life. And it's hard for me to pinpoint one thing. Um, you know, my parents getting a divorce could have been a factor, but I think deep down inside I've had always had, I've always been a big thinker. So there's always a million fucking things running through my mind at any given time. And it can be very tiring sometimes and downers in spe specifically, uh, heroin and Oxycontin really, cleared my mind of everything you can think of and had me in the most true form of presence like nothing else on the planet mattered the past didn't matter the future didn't matter i was sitting right here right now 
and I was enjoying myself. And I think that escape from the past and present is what kept me using, if that makes sense. Uh, oh my God. Well, first of all, welcome to the overthinker club. Cause that's, that's me. But what's really goddamn scary that you're saying is you took something that basically gave you peace to a certain degree. You kind of yeah. felt okay. You weren't in your mind for probably the first time in your life. And as a result of that, my guess is you're probably like, well, this feels pretty damn good. Let's keep it going. Yeah. hundred percent. Do you think there's anything that could have been done if you were to go back to that very first time, your junior year? Is there anything that you could have done other than not doing it that night, which sounds nice, but obviously with what's going on in high schools and just, you know, with youth that that's hard, but is there anything you think you could have done differently to kind of avoid this journey that you had to go on? I don't think about that because I am so grateful for my experience in my life. I would not change one thing about it. And I know that's easy. Some people say, oh, it's easy for you to say, man, like you're out on the other side now and you found a little bit of success and you're doing great and you have all these things now. Um, and that's true. It is easier for me to say that because of that thing. Um, but my past experiences are literally the reason why I am where I am today. And so I've never really put too much thought into what could have gone differently. One, because of what I just said, but also because I truly feel like there is some sort of, how do I say it? Like, <clears throat> let me think about this so I say it accurately. Like, not divine intervention or anything like that, but I feel like when you throw genetics into the mix and, like, what's preconceived for you, I feel like whoever's supposed to go on this journey is going to go on this journey. And I feel like, you know, I bring it back to those people who I say they used a couple times and put it down and never used again. They were never going to become addicts in the first place. Like they were able to do that. Maybe they weren't an overthinker and they didn't need that escape every day like I did or my friends did. Um, so I don't put too much thought into that because I believe that anywhere I had lived, you know, some people tell me like my mom in the past, right? When I right when I got sober and she was all excited and happy and we could have this conversation, she said, do you think things would have been differently if you had lived with your dad this whole time instead of living with me? And I said, absolutely not. I truly believe in my soul that wherever Cooper was on the planet, I was going to be right there with him. And I would have become the same person wherever I was. So th that this is just my story. And I believe that this is just the way it was going to play out. However, I was raised or wherever and I think I that's a live. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a key message, Cooper, for um, especially parents that are listening, because you know, sometimes they think, oh, it's, you know, that, that bad person, my friend is, or my kid is hanging out with. And I think what you're saying is like, I just had to do it once. And when I did it once, I was going to be hooked, which, you know, I don't know. What would you tell a parent, you know, if, if they had a kid, you know, that was in high school, what to do? What, what, do you have any guidance or any words of wisdom? Uh, because it's, it's scary as hell. 
A hundred percent. It's going to be very, very difficult for people to actually apply this to their life, but they cannot get down on their children, make them feel less than, make them feel like a piece of shit for what they're doing. Unless you have gone through drug addiction personally, you have no idea what pain and struggle feels like when it comes to being addicted to a drug. It is not something they want to be doing. And I can tell you for certain, they wake up every morning hoping that that day they won't need to do that thing to get through the day, but they cannot not do it. So it's not a matter of fuck my parents. I hate my friends. I hate my school. I hate how I was raised. I'm doing this out of spite. It is 100%. I can't not do this. And I wish I could get through the day without it. So advice to parents is to be comforting, be there for them. I'm not saying you need to allow them to do any of these things. They can know that you disapprove of what they're doing, but having them know that you will be there for them when they are ready will be comforting enough for them to know they have a landing pad if and when they're ready to make a change in their life or attempt to make a change in their life. I was going to ask you this question later, but it's a perfect tee up um, because it's something I think about a lot as I've talked to you. There's addiction in my family. And the thing I struggle with is helping versus enabling. Um, Mm -hmm. So when I raise that and that advice that you just gave about how parents can support, what's your thoughts on that? Like what should parents do or what should come to mind around helping versus enabling? Let's see. Helping can, to me, helping a drug addicted child or family member can look like putting little feelers out there that they know you're there for them and that you're ready to help. So that would look like, hey, how are you doing? If you ever need to talk or you're ever going through something or need someone to vent to, I'm here for you. Or if you're ever ready to get better, I'm willing to help you find a place to do that. Or, hey, I just spoke to so-and-so. Their kid just got sober. If you ever need someone to talk to, maybe they can help you because they've been through the experience you're going through. Enabling would be, um, you know, you can do it in my house so that I know you're safe. Or here's 40 bucks. You know, that's always the big one is, here's money. You know what I mean? Here's money to help you do the thing you want to do. And it, and it always comes in the form of like this hush hush deal where I'm giving you money and you know, I know what it's for, but we're just not going to talk about it. Right. I mean, there needs to be boundary set 100%. I'm not saying you should have a boundaryless home and run all over me and do whatever you want. There has to be hard boundaries set forth, but you can still be present and let them know that you're available if they ever do need help and then set a strong boundary that, you know, you can't do this at whatever you're doing. It's not going to be done at the house. I'm not going to be paying your car note every month. You're not going to be getting gas money from me, like all these enabling factors to enable them to do the thing that they're doing. So it's a very fine line and you got to, you know, tow it carefully. Um, 
but there are definite ways for you to come off as the caring parent who's present for their child as a result of someone who just lets them run all over them, you know? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. What's your thoughts on, I don't know, being there for the long haul? Because your point about caring and helping making suggestions, you know, that shit just doesn't happen oftentimes overnight, at least my experience. And, and being in there for the long haul sometimes is, is critically important because a lot of these things, and my guess is your story, don't sort themselves out overnight. So any thoughts on that? Yes, it's, ve- it's a very difficult thing to be consistent with, as is anything in life like consistency is always key with whatever aspirations or thing you're trying to accomplish um but it's very important that you keep those boundaries set and continue to just drop little feelers on them whoever it is you're even if it's your mom like i know plenty of people plenty of people i got sober with who have parents who are still using so it's reversed right And they do the same thing. They just drop little feelers out there. Hey, I'm going to a meeting this Friday. Would love to see you there. But nothing more. You know, as as soon as you get pushy, that creates a resentment. And the last thing you want to do is create resentment. That's the thing you're trying to avoid. Because once there's a resentment there, you've blocked off all forms of communication and all rational thinking. There is no more like hearing what you have to say, even if you don't agree with it. Once there's resentment, you don't want to hear anything they have to say because you're resentful to that person. So um, the little feeler trick is really good and just being consistent with it. If it's once a week, once every two weeks, whenever you hear of something that could be pertinent information to the person, then dropping it then. Um, But you know, I'm not going to sit here and say it's an easy task and it's simple. It's not. It's very, very difficult and it's straining and it's tiring and all of these things. But if you want to, you know, give yourself the best chance of future success, then you just need to be as consistent as possible. And as soon as you start, because resentment from the other side is highly likely as mm. well. Like, the right. so the sober person getting resentful at the using person because they're just not fucking getting it. You know, why can't they just get it? Their life is shit. They come from a good family. I, I put them in a good school. You know, there's arguments on either side of the story, wherever you come from and however you were raised. So you trying not to get resentful at the using person is highly important as well, because then you're going to want to stop dropping those feelers out there. And you have the the only way to avoid resentment at all costs is to know that this is not a personal attack on you, that they are using this way. They are sick. They have an issue that they can't get over and they need as much help as possible. Yeah. And that's, that's hard for a lot of people. And the reason being is like, you're coming at this very logically and you're not clouded by drug usage. So it's like, why the fuck do they have a problem? Like, can't they just stop? Don't they see what they're doing to their life? So I could totally see why, you know, the party that is there to help gets so frustrated. It totally makes sense. Well, yeah. And the other thing that, uh, you know, a little um, piece of advice I can also give is um, going to Al-Anon meetings. So Al-Anon is for all the people who don't have an issue 
who are a family member or a friend with someone who is using. So those groups are for the non quote unquote issue people to get together and discuss their problems and what they're going through, trying to experience life with a kid or a family member who is currently using and how they can decompress and work with one another on what's working in their life to not become resentful, continue to be caring, continue to be there for their loved one, et cetera. So if you do need a group setting of people who are going through what you're going through, but you're not on the using side, then I highly suggest you go to those meetings because those can be highly useful too. Hey, Cooper, one of the things that you said a few minutes ago is that every morning you would wake up and you'd be like, God, I hope I don't need to use today. Can you take me through like a typical day? What would typical day look like uh, for you? Yeah, so it's so it's funny. It, it, it actually would be the night before, right? Because I would wake up sober and you never want to wake up. Anytime you wake up sober, you immediately need that thing in your bloodstream to get you feeling right again. So actually, it would be the night before after you had just used or whatever you were doing to free yourself. So as soon as I would use the night before, I would feel really good, right? I just put the thing in my, in my uh, body that makes me feel right. And then I would say, I'm not using tomorrow. Like, I, obviously, mm. I'm going to say that because I feel so good in the moment. And then as soon as I wake up, there is no, I'm not using tomorrow. Like, that's not an option anymore. We're just going to go figure out a way to get what I need. So obviously, you know, I had jobs, but they were one week, two week, three week things. And then I would either get fired or, you know, leave because, you know, it was an inconvenience to my life. Um, so I would uh, wake up, figure out a way to get money that day and then go use. And that would be, you know, just a rotating theme each and every day. Like it was just Groundhog's Day. Every single day was the same. Figure out a way to get money. Go, go get high do it all over again. Your, your entire life almost became in service of, of drugs. I mean, that's what it ultimately boiled down to. It sounds like. Oh yeah. I mean, yeah. hundred percent. What about relationships? Can you talk about what it did to your important relationships, friends, family, girlfriends, anybody else? Yeah. So I never really dated in high school. My, my mind was elsewhere on more important things. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I'll never forget <clears throat> as soon as I got sober and I had some time, I had, I was in the kitchen of my parents' house. I was talking to my mom and she, she looked me in the eyes and she was quiet for a second. And she said, man, I just realized that I haven't had a conversation with you like this in years. And it really hit me. I was like, holy shit. Because in my mind, I'm so, uh, you know. I'm going so hard, moving here, moving there, trying to figure out how I'm going to be all right for the day. And I'm not worried at all or thinking at all about how I'm treating my family, how I'm being perceived by my family. But in that moment, it was so clear to me that she was serious when she said, I don't feel like I've you've looked me in my eyes to have a conversation with me in years. And this is just hitting me now because I'm experiencing this with you. So Back, you know, I only know 
that my relationships were shit with everyone in my life because of my experience after having been sober and having like real meaningful, meaningful connections and, and conversations with these people. But back then, yes, obviously it put a strain on every aspect of my life. Like every aspect there was not one positive thing that came from it and and breaking down uh relationships and those becoming worse over time was definitely something that happened what's crazy about what you just said is that in the moment you had no clue that you were messing up all of your relationships and it wasn't until after you got clean that you were able to look back and say god look what happened which i think once again that's kind of peering into an addict's life and the way they think, because once again, a normal person doesn't think that way. They would see the deterioration of these relationships. Um, so I think that that's important, I think, to know, especially anybody that is going through this or has a family member or friend that's going through this. Yeah, yeah, no, 100%. Um, and this this brings me back to the point I made earlier in, in that, you know, try not to be resentful at these people or be confused at why they just can't get it because their mind is so far elsewhere than, you know, I'm hurting these people. I need to stop for them. That's the key thing is they're never going to stop for somebody else. They have to stop for themselves. They need to be so sick of what they're going through. And at the same time, feel connected to a thing that can pull them out of it. That could be another person. That could be a group of people. That could be God if you're a religious person. But it will not happen because you want it to happen. It has to happen because they need to be ready to make the change. And the only way that that starts is that they need to admit they have an issue to begin with. As soon as that they admit they have an issue then they know they need to do something different to change it. And I don't want to scare anybody, but the time between admitting they have an issue and them actually potentially getting sober can be years and years. It could be months, but it could also be a very long time. So not to scare anybody, but that is the typical time frame: admitting they have a problem and then eventually, hopefully um, finding something that can help them pull, pull themselves out of it. What's your story? Because everybody's got a story where um, you really knew that it got bad. Like, oh shit, I gotta, I gotta change. Or maybe that was your moment where you're like, I need to, I need to change where I'm at, where I'm going. Um, <clears throat> as soon as I started. There's so many things. Um, I started stealing from my family to fund my addiction. And then as soon as I started getting in trouble with the law, um, probably those two things is when I was like, this is bad. And then it really became evident that it was a problem when I just like continued to do what I was doing. Like those two things weren't a wake-up call for me to change you know it was just this is my reality now and this is a way I can do what I need to do so I'm just going to continue to keep doing it um so probably it's a mix of things but those those two things came to mind first so it's kind of like well I just stole from my parents and I just got in trouble with the law 
and I'm continuing to do it, what the hell am I thinking? Is that kind of the the pattern that ultimately emerged? Yeah, it was kind of like, man, I'm a I'm a piece of shit. This is really bad, but there is no other option. Like, unfortunately, I'm not going to change these actions because right now they seem to be the best way to get me what I need. So, you know, there's mm-hmm. no it's not I'm not going to stop doing it. That's not an option. It's like, oh, I'm a piece of shit, but it is what it is. We're just going to continue on through life. So it was kind of that simple. It's like you feel bad about yourself for a second. And then you realize that we, Hey bro, we have no time to feel bad for ourselves. We need to do what we need to do to get uh, more of what we need, you know? Yeah, totally. But there must've been a moment where you're like, okay, I can't do this any longer. And as you indicated earlier, that moment may actually turn into years, but was there a moment or a series of moments where you did say, I need to get help. I need to fix this. I'm trying to think of specific times before before I actually got sober. Yeah. Maybe it's not even a moment. Yeah. So yes, back to what I, what I referred to earlier in that, you know, being like the night before I had just gotten high, I'm feeling very good. Um, I don't need anything right now. Um, you know, I, I would be in the mirror in the bathroom saying like, what are we doing, man? You know, like th- this is not good. You you keep getting in trouble. Your parents are fucking, you know, scared. They're hurt. This is obviously an issue. Um, and it's not looking like it's going to change any longer um, or any sooner. We need to do something about this. But again, there was no action on my part to actually take any steps to correct myself, you know? And so that's why I, I feel really grateful in my story because I was forced into it to begin with. And then something clicked with me after some time that caused me to change and become the person I am today. Um, so I'm very, I'm very grateful for my story, but like I have, Uh, so much respect for some of my friends and some of the other people I know who were where I was and then just walked in willingly to an AA room or an NA room and just sat on the fucking bench and in the chair and listened and had no, um, you know, jail time to correct themselves or to get sober no inpatient treatment, nothing like they just willingly walked into a room and they could have at any time walked out whenever they wanted, but they didn't. They just sat there and they listened and they took in all of the information they were getting and all of the other stories that helped them relate to somebody and did it themselves. So in my eyes, some people would be like, oh, that's rough, dude. Cooper had it bad. Like that that's a long time to be in a program but I actually feel like I had it easier than some people who willingly went into a room um, without being court mandated to do anything. I was going to ask you that. So that's ultimately what got you into a program was a court mandate. Yeah. Yeah. I got in trouble. um, And then I was mandated to go to an inpatient uh, rehab program. And how long was the, uh, the program? 
it was I was on a one year commitment. So after one year, I could have left and I would have um, met my mandate. But I ended up staying for an extra seven months. So I was there 19 months in total. Wow, Jesus, that's a long time. So so you said when you went in, obviously, it's not something you volunteered to do. It's not even funny, but it's not something that you volunteered to do. How long until you started to feel like this was the place and this was the path that you you needed to be on, meaning that you bought into the program? This is going to scare people again. But after my one year, <laughs> like I was I was like five days from my commitment being up like I was. 11 months and 25 days in and I was going to go home. I was going to leave and go back to my parents' house and who God knows what would have happened had that been a reality. But my father-in-law, who was then just my ex-girlfriend's dad at the time, um, was like, what's your plan, dude? You're going to go home and do what? Just go back to the same house, to the same friends, to the same car. Like, what is the plan? And he convinced me to stay and I would become paid staff at the program. And it wasn't anything crazy. It was like $200 a week I would get paid. Right. But he convinced me to stay and I ended up staying an extra seven months. So to answer your question, I truly believe that it wasn't until after I committed, got through my one-year commitment, and then had stayed an extra week or two. So a year and two weeks in, maybe, I was like, all right, I'm actually doing something to better myself instead of just doing what the court told me to do and then going back to my old life. You know, I was actually making an honest effort that I chose to do for myself. No one else told me to do it. I didn't have to do it. I did this because someone suggested it to me that it would better me and that it would help me become a man. And I took their suggestion and did it. So probably uh, just over a year after having been there that I really started to um, see a perception change in myself. That, that is going to scare a lot of people because I think uh, oftentimes the perception is, you know, a 30 or 90 day program. And, and most people, I shouldn't even say most people, but, but, but you could come out on the other end. Good. And you're saying that it literally took you a year and a couple of weeks, which is, which is scary, but you were going through the program the whole time. Was it that you just hadn't fully bought into it or that you hadn't fully committed at that point in time because it wasn't your choice to be in there? Yeah, that's the problem, right? Is I was at the beginning, obviously, I was going to take the one year program, um, as opposed to doing several years in jail. So it's just a numbers game at that point. I'm like, of course, I'm going to be semi free on the street, not in jail anymore for a third of the time. I'm going to do this, obviously. But that's the thing is, the whole plan was at the time, I didn't really know it because I was just going through the motions, but I was planning on leaving in five days when the year came up. So obviously I was there not to strictly better myself, but just do the time the court told me to do. And then I could go back to my life. Um, and I have done a 60 day program also in a intra- inpatient residential rehab. And I have anybody who's going to listen to this 
who will take anything from it, I highly suggest you look at one year plus programs for any of your loved ones who may need a change. That's going to sound crazy, um, but I have experienced 60 day programs. I know so many people who have been through 30, 60, 90 day programs. And to be honest with you, I don't think I've ever seen maybe one or two successes out of like one 30 or 60 day program. Um, and, and this might scare people even more, but just out of full transparency, um, I don't, I, I like to be as honest as possible and give everyone the full picture. I saw hundreds of people go through the program I went through and I maybe know, including myself, three or four who are actually like doing something super productive and you know, having goals and accomplishing goals and doing things with their life out of all of the men that I saw go through that program. So that's going to scare people too. But that just goes back to just how serious drug addiction can be. Um, is that a very small percentage of people actually come out on the other side and do something with their lives and stay sober? Um, a, a big, big majority of them don't ever get sober or use again shortly after becoming sober. You know, Cooper, I, I appreciate you sharing that, especially being so direct, because it's interesting to me, the conversation around drug abuse, when you think about some of the other issues that are in our country, are it's kind of like wiped under the rug. Like, I think I just read something in San Francisco, the drug overdoses during the two years of COVID were three times the number of COVID deaths. Yeah. But nobody talks, I mean, people talk about it a little, but this shit is impacting our kids at an alarming rate and people don't want to talk about it. Maybe it's shame or I don't know what it is, but, but I appreciate you, you sharing, sharing your story and giving this very direct advice. Yeah, it's, it's really sad because I know many people who have died from what, um, from fentanyl overdoses. So when I was using fentanyl, wasn't a thing. Now it's a thing using heroin or drugs today is a, it, I don't want to say it's more dangerous, but frankly, it's more lethal than it was right. 10 years ago because of the use of fentanyl. So what people are doing now is cutting their drugs with fentanyl and cutting means they're adding filler to the drug. Um, to make more of it at a less expensive rate. And they're using fentanyl, which anybody can Google, but look up a lethal dose of fentanyl. I think it's the size of the, of a point of a um, clothespin. So it's very, very small. And that's a lethal dose of fentanyl. So the, you hear about all these people dying from fentanyl overdoses. A lot of them are using uh, you know, molly or ecstasy or heroin or methamphetamine, and it's being cut with fentanyl, which is killing them. So I wish it was spoke about more, um, but it's just not. And, and I know it's such a problem and it's so widespread and it's so sad that it doesn't get more press coverage because then we could start to hold these fentanyl manufacturers more accountable. But, you know, it, it's crazy. The world's run by money. And if you know, I don't want to get into politics too much, but if it seems as if people can line their pockets with some more money, then they're willing to let certain things uh, slide under the rug. And it's really unfortunate. 
Yeah. You know, it's, it's crazy. My, my, my daughter went and visited some friends at another college last week and I'm not going to say what college it is, but uh, she called us and she's like, you're not going to believe what the, the kids are using. They're using horse tranquilizers. Oh yeah. I'm like, uh... What the fuck? Like what, what's what, what? Like why? I, yeah. So yeah it sounds ketamine. like you've heard about it. <laughs> ketamine. It's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Ketamine. That's horse tranquilizer. But yeah, it's a very, it's a very common thing, but yeah, it's insane. People are just, people get high on whatever, especially if you're in the uh, attic mode and you're willing to get your hands on anything to take you out of your own head. It's, it's pretty insane. Well, in some respects too, this is the other thing that people should be listening. Um, It's almost like you won the lottery. Not the good lottery, but you won the lottery. It's like, you know, you could take some of this stuff out, no big deal. You took it and you finally felt at peace. And that's what's so damn scary about this is that you don't know if you're predisposed to go down this path until you're, you know, well along that path. Yeah. I mean, there can be some cues to whether or not you're predisposed to it. Like if you have, if one of your parents was an addict, um, there's probably a decent chance you may struggle with something in the future. Like, I don't care what anyone says, but most of the people I know who are sober or currently using have a parent that um, struggled with something or it runs in the family somewhere down the line, you know, most of them. So yeah, um, there might be, there might be a little bit there to look at, like if, you know, pending, parents or family are having honest conversations with their kids and their kids know exactly who their parents are and that's open discussion then um you can look at that not all the time of course there's plenty of people i know who, who whose parents did not struggle with drug or alcohol um but most of the time in my experience that that seems to be the case so cooper just going back to the time where you finally committed, it sounds like once again, you're just past a year uh, and you're a very small sample size. What was it that you did, I guess, in those ensuing seven months and then even to this day? So again, a lot of people will say, holy shit, man, like that's crazy. Unfortunate. You had to go through that. But to me, it was the best thing that ever happened to me. And the program, this I don't want to get too sidetracked, but this is when, like, I have, I have told this story, you know, several times, obviously to different people. And every time I really sit back and think about it, it's insane to me how much shit in my life prior to that had to go perfectly for me to be in the situation that I was. So my wife, my now wife, um, only met my friends and I in high school because her friend relocated from the high school she went to and, you know, enrolled in the high school we went to, which brought her our way to meet us. And then I dated her. We broke up. We were um, separated for a long time. And then my mom called her and said, you know, Cooper's in trouble again. It's really bad this time. Um, We need help. She said, oh, 
my dad is the director of this program. Maybe he can get him in there. And, you know, fast forward a year or not, not a year, fast forward a couple months, I'm in the program now. Fast forward another year, I'm actually working on myself for myself, not because the court told me to do so. And the program I went to um, was very militant, very serious. So there was no internet access, no TVs in the house, no phones, no letters from loved ones, nothing, no influence from the outside whatsoever. It was truly going to break you down to nothing and attempt to rebuild you as a new person. Um, so when you got there, they, sh- they buzzed your head to a one every morning. We shaved our face clean. Um, and that was every single morning, every guy in the program at any, at any given time, there were 70, 70 to hundred guys in the program. Everyone had a clean shaven face and everyone had a one buzz cut. And that was to get everybody um, to the same level. So there was no influence about, oh, he's got a good hairline or he has cool hair or um, what a nice beard or look at that chain he's wearing. He's got nice jewelry. It was nothing. It was, we're going to supply you with some shit clothes everyone's going to buzz their head and everyone's going to shave their face and there's going to be no other influence on, you know, as far as this program goes. And it, it's honestly by design, such a great program because of that, because everyone's equal now, right? There's no influence as he's better than for this, or he's less than for this. And every morning we made our bed with a 45 degree angle. Um, we folded our clothes and our pants and our socks a very specific way. And we were actually taught when we first got there how to fold our clothes. Every week we had a house inspection. And if not, if it wasn't tight and clean, kind of like how a military um, housing would be, um, we were forced to redo it. We got up every morning at 630. We all went to work. Some of the guys went to warehousing jobs. The other guys went to work in the trades and construction. Um, So the program was self-sufficient in that it was not funded by the state or the county or the federal government or anything like that. We actually bid jobs in the construction division. The guys went to work to make the money on those bid jobs, which in turn funded the program. So it was we were actually working to um, provide for ourselves. So that was the whole goal is learn, learn a work ethic, learn how to be honest, learn how to take responsibility for your actions, just like you will in the real world. And um, you know, when you're done with the program, hopefully you can bring all those uh, principles um, and characteristics with you when you leave and do something in your life. Yeah, I, I love it because basically what you're saying is is like you said, they 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 took you down to nothing, but then they built all of these different values. Like just the the notion of kind of hard work and responsibility, um, I think is fantastic. Can, can you and if you can't, totally fine, but are you able to mention what program this is? Yes, it's Jericho Project, J-E-R-I-C-H-O. 
and if anyone's familiar with the story of the walls in Jericho, um, those were broken down. So that's where, I don't know the full story, that's how it was explained to me, but that's where the name comes from, is basically breaking guys down to be rebuilt again. Um, and it's located in Brisbane, California, so just outside Daly City, South San Francisco. Got it. Thank you. Thank you. I mean, there's probably somebody out there that's going to listen to this and say, gosh, I want to, I want to reach out to them. I could literally talk to you for hours, but I'm, I'm curious, where's your life now? Because this is not just a story of, you know, this, this guy that was an addict had to go through this year plus long program. Things have turned out pretty damn good for you. And, and I think you even said earlier, like, I'm grateful for this experience because it's made who I am today. It sounds like you're very proud of yourself. So, so what are you up to nowadays? So nowadays I am married. I have a four-year-old and a one-year-old. Um, we live here in the East Bay still close to where I grew up and I am a real estate agent. So I help people buy and sell residential property in the East Bay. Um, and I have found a little success in doing so. Um, I make a good living for myself. I pay the bills and we're able to do most of the things we want to do as a result. Um, what's most important, though, is that I have good, healthy friendships and relationships with my sister, my stepdad, my mom, my wife's family, my uncles, aunts, cousins. Um, I'm present. I'm on time um, for the commitments that I've made. I apologize for. <laughs> As I say that, I realize that I pushed our initial appointment back. Um, but for the most part, I am on time and um, show up to my commitments and um, am present and honest. And I keep bringing it back to Jericho, but I learned all of these things from Jericho. You know, um, I feel like Jericho did a phenomenal job in changing my perception on what it means to be a man, help provide, be present, take responsibility, be an honest person, make an honest living. Um, and then I got my continued sobriety success from a 12 step program. So I used both of those things in conjunction to get me to where I am today. Um, the only somewhat negative thing I can say about Jericho is that it did not teach me how to continue to stay sober. So after mm. I had left Jericho, I ended up drinking again after two months of being out of there. Um, I had 23 months sober at that time. I went out to the bar one night and drank. And the next morning I got sober and now it's been seven years. But I used the 12-step program to continue my sobriety. Jericho taught me how to be a man and be an honest person and live by these principles and standards. Was there anything that night after 23 months that pushed you or was it like, eh, I'm doing pretty good. I can have a drink. I was so nervous, man, when I think about it. Like I knew I was doing something wrong. But that's the thing with like the alcoholic or drug addict mentality. There's no defense to the first drink or drug. That's the big problem is if you don't have, you know, we call it a higher power. 
Um, but that can be, that can look like many different things. That can be a literal God. If you're a Christian or whatever religion you follow, um, that can be a group of people like an AA or NA room. Um, but if you don't have a defense to the first drink or drug and you're truly a drug addict or an alcoholic, you will eventually go use or drink. And I didn't have anything at that time. So I did it and I was so nervous. I, I knew I was doing something wrong, but I used a fight I got in with who, you know, now my wife, but at the time, my girlfriend and we got in a big fight and I was like, you know what? Fuck it. Like we're, I'm, I'm going to, I had already known it was like three in the afternoon. I already knew tonight I'm going to drink. So I went over to my buddy's house. We were watching a UFC fight. Um, it was this one of the buddies I partied with a lot in high school. All of the same people mm -hmm. were at the house. Like nothing had changed. It was like, you know, five years or something later. And, uh, all the same faces, same living room, same TV, all the same shit. And I went, ended up drinking that night and I felt like absolute shit about it. I knew I did not want to do this anymore. And I, uh, called my girlfriend. She picked me up and the next morning I went to a meeting and I, I committed myself and now it's been seven years. It's pretty fucking sweet. Um, man, it almost brings a tear to my eye. So you keep saying like, I, I would not change this for anything. So when you think about this entire experience, has it prepared you for other things now that go in your life? Meaning like challenges or things that are, are big obstacles because you have perspective? Uh, I feel like the more one can experience, it can only better your life. So I'm big on experiences. I've always been very curious about everything. I like to know how shit's made. I like to know how um, logistics are done. Like, it's funny. I talk to my wife about things sometimes and she's like, she doesn't say this. She's being sweet, but I know she's thinking like, I, I don't give a fuck about anything you find interesting it, it, as far as like how things are manufactured or how does Subway corporate provide thousands of Subway restaurants across the nation with fresh lettuce every day. Like these things just interest me and baffle me how people are able to get shit done. And she doesn't care about those things. She has focuses on other things. And I tie that back to my experience with using drugs, drinking alcohol, and what I went through. I get to have all of these experiences to help better myself as a person, relate to people more, and I use it in my life every day. And I'm so grateful that I've been able to experience both sides of it. You know, a lot of people have not experienced it. And I'm not saying they should because drug addiction can be uh, a horrible, horrible thing and very difficult to get out of. Um, but I feel that I have learned so much from it that I can actually apply to my life today. And that's why I say I'm grateful for my journey. That's awesome. I know we've uh, touched on this a lot, but what do you tell that person that was you seven or eight years ago when they ask you for advice, somebody that's currently using, is there anything that you share with them? 
I try not to share as much as I try to listen. Um, I feel like oftentimes we can be so quick to giving advice or um, trying to instill something in them that they have to do or a way that they have to think. And we fall short on just listening to what they have to say. And then um, answering a question if they have one. Oftentimes you'll find that the more you listen, the more they start to ask questions that they need answers to, in which case you can answer them. Well, I think that's another great tip for anybody that has a family member that's dealing with this, you know, just listen and and maybe they'll share something that you could then help them with. Yeah, I can, I can tell, I can tell you from my experience, um, the more shit you try to instill in them, the more you try to get them to understand about you, the quicker they're going to build a resentment towards you. And you're going to slowly lose that bond and that trust that you have with one another, even if you don't have the same perception or outlook on life or things. So if you can just be a listening ear, give advice when it's asked or answer questions when it's asked, the better chance you have at not severing what little bond you may still have with that person. So just listen as much as possible and um, don't start demanding shit or like, you need to think this way. You had such a good life. You grew up with this, which means you should believe in this or look at what your best friend's doing. He's in college now. Why can't you do that? Like you're, you're, I guarantee you a resentment is going to be built and you're going to lose whatever little trust that person has in you that is even giving them the opportunity to have a conversation with you in the first place. So listen as much as possible. Such great counsel. Like I said, I could, I could talk to you all day long, just two more questions. Um, And this one is kind of a catch all. Is there anything on your journey that you didn't share that you think would be helpful? And there doesn't need to be anything. I just want to make sure that if something was rolling around in your mind that you're like, I need to communicate this, that you have the opportunity to do so. Sure. Let me see. Um, Yeah. I mean, as far as my career goes, I am, I love what I do and I think this doesn't tie in at all to like drug addiction or alcoholism or anything like that. But if you can find something you love to do and you go to work every day and it doesn't feel like work, then I truly feel like you've won. Um, It's really sad to me that a vast majority of the population is not pleased with their place of work or what they do for a living and they just can't wait for Friday and then they dread Monday. That breaks my heart to think that to think about that. So I hope that everybody can find something that they truly love and experience a bunch of different shit before they find that one thing that they love and then they can find a way to monetize that thing that they'd really like to do. So this is kind of off topic, but I I my hope is that a lot of people can be pleased with what they're doing every day and not, you know, be looking forward to a day where they don't need to do that thing. 
and then dread the time they need to go back to doing that thing. So it's kind of off topic, but I think about that stuff a lot. You know, it's funny, Cooper, it's so not off topic because, you know, I, I left my company after almost 30 years and part of it was to chase something that gave me deep fulfillment. Mm-hmm. Now, for all the folks that are listening from Deloitte, I love Deloitte. It was the greatest experience, as I, I've said so many times, but I just needed to do something different. And when I started this podcast, quite frankly, my my mindset was it was going to be a lot of people that had lost their way at work and were looking to pivot in their career and do something that gave them that joy, that deep fulfillment. And so the fact that I didn't even cue you up for you to say that, which I think is probably critical for everybody, because quite frankly, if you're doing a job that you love, where you say you don't feel like you're working, um, that's going to bring so much more joy to your life. That's going to trickle down to every other facet of your life and, and potentially even, you know, help you through those times that are challenging. And, and maybe even for people, you know, that do have some addictions, maybe it, it helps um, not, not take them down that path, but maybe doesn't push them into it. Because a lot of times addictions do arise out of jobs that people are, are not happy with, where there's too much stress or they don't like their boss or so many other reasons. Um, so I really appreciate you saying that. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's, it's important to um, be fulfilled with yourself, whatever that may look like, and try not to do anything just to please somebody else because that's a sure shot way to let yourself down. And you need to look after yourself first and foremost. Um, There's no way you can look after other people or support other people if you don't even support yourself to begin with. So I think it's highly important um, that you follow those gut feelings that you have. And like in your case, you know, I'm sure you love the time you spent at Deloitte, but at some point... Um, there was a small void that you felt you needed to fulfill within yourself. So it's not like somebody can, you know, necessarily hates what they're doing for 30 years that can come after 29 years of having done that thing. You know what I mean? But like just acting on that feeling when it does arise so that you stay fulfilled, you stay pleased with who you are as a person and you don't feel like you're, um, selling yourself short. Yeah. I mean, that's almost a great place to end though. I do have one more, more question, but I'll just, you know, put a stake in the ground, find the thing that you love. Life is too goddamn short. And to hear it from Cooper, I think, uh, comes from a place of experience. Um, so hopefully everybody pays attention. So Cooper, the last question I do have, um, is really about this podcast time to sing your song. Um, and I think, you definitely are singing your song now. I mean, the story that you shared, where you came from, the challenge, it wasn't something that happened overnight. It was, you know, a multi-year effort to get clean. And then look at where you are now. I mean, I don't even think it's necessarily just this incredible job that you have or the financial or the career success. I mean, you've got two young kids. It sounds like a great wife. Sounds like incredible relationships with your family and friends. So, So things really have worked out for you. So when you think about this journey that you've been on, is there a song that comes to mind that really brings to life that journey? You know, to be honest with you, there's no real one song that I can really pinpoint. And I kind of thought about it for a while and I was like, I I don't want to bullshit anybody and just throw something out there. But what I can say that it is give you a genre of music and that's reggae music and reggae music to me, 
calms me. Um, it puts me in that vibe I discussed with you earlier about, um, where I just feel good and I can just move to the sounds of the song. And it, I don't know, there's something about it. I can't really pinpoint that no other genre makes me feel. And a couple, um, groups would be, uh, slightly stupid. I really like them revolution. Um, just to name a couple and that genre, uh, really came to mind first when I thought of music that makes me feel good. Now, this isn't to say, you know, they talk about stories that are like mine and it's relatable. It's purely just an example of what makes me feel good. And this ties back into everything we spoke about, about feeling good about yourself and being in your zone and being comfortable. And I feel like reggae music does that for me. Awesome. I think uh, when I sit outside tonight, because it is pretty warm here in Texas, I'm going to turn on a little bit of reggae and, and think about you. So Cooper, thank you very much. I mean, I don't think you know how many people you're going to help through this conversation. Um, I know that there's a lot of people that are struggling with, with drug abuse. I know that there's a lot of parents and families that are on the other end. And for somebody that has been in a family that have had addicts of different sorts, you've taught me a lot taught me a lot of things that I should do, quite frankly, a lot of things that I shouldn't do. And so I really appreciate that. I know that that's going to be felt by other people as well. So I know that it's probably difficult to share all of this and go through your story. Maybe not. Uh, maybe you're okay with it now, but, but I think you're going to do a world of good. So thank you for that, Cooper. Thank you so much for having me. And before we go, I just want to let um, anybody and everybody who may listen to this um, know that I am available. Um, if you have any questions or you have a loved one going through a dark time, if you need, uh, if you have any questions or need any guidance, um, I am on Instagram and Facebook almost all day, every day. It is just Cooper Eisenman, first and last name. You can DM me anytime you need anything, and I would be more than happy to share a little bit more of my experience and help answer any questions to help guide you through any difficult times. And this goes for family members of people using or people who are currently struggling and using who want a safe place to uh, speak with someone who's had the experience that they may be going through. What a great way to end it. You're a good man, Cooper. Thank you. Thank you so much, Mike. Uh, I really appreciate you having me on here and uh, I had a fantastic time. I am speechless and inspired. Cooper, thank you for being so open with your story and sharing your journey and learnings along the way. Let me leave you with a few thoughts from my time with Cooper. First of all, for many, the first time is enough to draw them into the destruction that drugs can create in their life. Addicts will never, ever stop for someone else. They need to be so sick of what they're going through that they decide on their own that it is time to stop. And this usually requires that they be connected to something or someone greater than themselves to pull them through. If you have a loved one who is an addict, do more listening than telling. This is very hard, but you run the risk of them not opening up or even shutting you out if you're always yelling at them or telling them what to do. 
And finally, don't underestimate the impact that a career has on your overall mental state, good and bad. I'm on the hunt for great stories of people who were once lost and are now singing their song. So hit me up if you have a great story. If you know somebody that's got a great story, you can reach me on social media, Michael Kearney on LinkedIn and Emma Kearney 33 on Twitter. You can even email me, Mike, time to sing your song.com. So until next time, start singing your song today because as the anonymous quote goes, tomorrow comes, this day will be gone forever. And in its place is something that you have left behind. That'll be something good.